This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. I hope you're having a uh, good weekend so far. A lot to do, obviously. Coming up, we're going to talk about the, the Paris Climate Agreement. And, and the hysteria over Trump backing out of this thing. Um, the hysteria, is, it's, it's absurd. It, it's so bizarre because you have two types of environmentalists. And we'll talk all about this coming up. But you have two types of environmentalists when this Paris Accord passed, uh, I guess, it was a year and a half ago. One group said, oh, it's so historic. So wonderful. So historic. So amazing. And then you had other environmentalists who said, wait a second. This is a giant pile of nothing. It doesn't, doesn't do any." Now, I happen to fall into that category. So when you realize what the Paris Accord actually is, which we'll talk about, tell you exactly what it is, and and then you you see that Trump you know, backed out of it, and then you look at all the hysteria, you're like, well, what are people hysterical about? It was nothing. So we'll, we'll do that coming up. I think we can do that in this hour. We're going to talk with Karen Vaughn, whose son was a Navy SEAL, was killed in 2011 in Afghanistan. She has a book out, which is fantastic called World Changer, and we're going to talk to a farmer, a local farmer here in uh, California, and and we're going to share with you the most absurd regulation maybe I've heard ever going against this farmer, and finally he, at least, is fighting back. So we got a lot of good stuff coming up today. I want to start off here, though, because over last weekend, Memorial Day weekend, or I should say Memorial Day, I was driving around, and and, uh, my local show had the best of, and we played replayed an interview that I did with a World War II soldier. Unbelievable story. He was shot down in France, so enemy territory, crashed into a mountain, hiked down the mountain, enemy territory, came across a house that had a, a Christian symbol on the front porch. It wasn't a cross, but it was some, something like, like culturally French and Christian that, that was on the front. And he was the preacher's son. So he thought, you know, maybe these people would, would help him. Some food, safety, water. But he decided not to knock on their door because he thought that if they helped him, he would be putting them in danger. So he kept walking. And he's injured, he's got broken everything. And, and, he, and he kept walking and came across another house, same thing, and decided not to ask for help. 
and kept going. And then he was captured and spent years in captivity. And that thought process blows my mind. We all like to think that we're not selfish. And even if you are genuinely not a selfish person and you're very thoughtful of others and you always think of other people first, if your option was, I'll wait outside in enemy territory until I probably get caught and then go spend years in a prison camp, or I have a broken arm, I'm starving, I'll probably die out here in the freezing cold, so maybe I'll just ask these people for some help. And maybe they'll give me some food and a blanket. <laughs> like I'm pretty sure 100% of people would choose to knock on the door for help. But not this veteran. Not this man. Stunning story. The selflessness in, in the midst of his horrible circumstances. His, he, he put other people's welfare ahead of his. Strangers. Crazy story. It was a couple months ago, and I'm glad, Eric, that you that you replayed that. So that being said, I read a, I read a great analysis from David French the other day. Uh, let me start here, though. So this is James Mattis, Jim Mattis, Matt and Dog Mattis, our Secretary of Defense. He did a long interview with Dexter Filkins, who's a really great writer for The New Yorker. So this is Dexter writing. He says, when I asked Matt and Dog... What worries him? What worried him most in his new position as Secretary of Defense? I expected him to say ISIS or Russia or the defense budget. All right, so think about that. So this reporter says, uh, you know, Mr. Mattis, Secretary Mattis, what are you most worried about? What worries you the most about this new position? Wasn't ISIS? Wasn't Russia? Instead, he said, quote, the lack of political unity in America, the lack of fundamental friendliness. It seems like an awful lot of people in America and around the world feel spiritually and personally alienated. Whether it be from organized religion or from local community school districts or from their governments. That's what Mad Dog Mattis is most worried about. So French noticed that every war movie you see has the same stereotypical characters. You have the guy from Brooklyn with a crazy accent. You have the Kentucky redneck who's never left his hillbilly town. And you have the Puerto Rican guy, right? It's like the same, the same thing. But So they come from all walks of life. And you got the rich guy and the poor guy. And this, this, you know, totally, completely different childhoods, everything in every way. But they come together because they share a common mission. These are the stereotypes in every war movie because it's true. It's based on reality. People who would never encounter each other in the real world. Real world. Maybe even people who would hate each other in any other context. In the military, they form a bond that is unique in the human experience. And that is the point where they will lay down their lives for this person. And that's the only way our military works is if it, if it happens like that. So let's think about this. If Mad Dog says, if Mattis says that the biggest worry he has is lack of unity. Think about this question. What is one cultural 
political, social, or religious trend in America that pulls people together more than it pushes us apart. Can you think of anything? So something in our culture, something political, something social, something religious, like anything in America, any trend in America today that pulls people closer together rather than pushes us apart. Is there anything? For the love of Pete, ESPN is now so political people can't watch it anymore. Millions of people every month stopping watching ESPN. There's nothing. I can't think of anything that... Truly, in our, in our culture today, pulls us together rather than pushes us apart. I can't find I can't think of any one single thing. Now, maybe, I mean, not too long ago, we could at least find a piece of unity in our belief in God. I mean, that's like a most basic, fundamental thing that people all across America and in our culture at least had that. But last week we talked about how only 26 or excuse me, how 26% of Americans don't believe in God. And usually it's like 10% historically last couple generations, about 10% of people are atheists. Don't believe in God. Now it's 26%. So we can't even have a fundamental base conversation understanding that we both believe in God. Like you can't even count on that. I'll end here with one more quote from Mattis. He said, I came out of the tight knit Marine Corps. But I've lived on college campuses for three and a half years. Go back to Ben Franklin, Mattis said, and his descriptions about how the Iroquois nations lived and worked together, which we will do. We will go back to that. Compare that to America today. I think that when you look at veterans coming out of the wars, they're more and more just slapped in the face by this isolation and they're used to something better. He says they think it's PTSD, which it can be, but it's really about alienation. If you lose any sense of being part of something bigger, then why should you care about your fellow man? I absolutely think that's why vets are 9% of the population, but 18% of suicides. You've heard before that more than 20 veterans a day commit suicide. More than 20 a day. And there's a lot of reasons for this. And this is is a broad brush that's not applicable to everyone. But I think for a lot of them, as Mattis is saying, you go from the high, a veteran goes from, a service member goes from the high of, I'm a part of something important. We have a common mission. These are my brothers. I'll die for them and they'll die for me. Common mission. We love each other. I'll die for them. So you go from that into our normal everyday culture of, who cares about anyone? Zero unity, zero mission, zero focus. Everyone just floating around, seeing where the wind blows. No love for each other. No sacrifice for each other. No thought for other people. Forget about laying your life down for the person next to you. You're going to break them. We get in arguments over whose parking spot they. I mean, so can you like you see this mountaintop of of fellow of, of unity, mountaintop of unity, truly a mountaintop of unity in the military with the man, the brother next to you into whatever the heck we're doing in our culture today. I can absolutely see how a vet would feel so alienated when they come back down from that mountaintop of selflessness and unity and into the valley of selfishness and division. How depressing that would be. I don't know. Just something I wanted to share. 
when the Secretary of Defense says that the greatest threat to our nation, and, and the, General Mattis is a man we should listen to, our greatest, the greatest threat to our nation is a lack of purpose and unity at home. one 888 I want to come back and uh, talk about the Hayabusa effect. Because I think that's a major contributor to uh, where we are today. We'll do that next. one 888 Mike Slater Show on The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. Slider, you saw the other day that uh, some eighth graders from Jersey visited Washington, D.C., and they had a chance to take their class picture with Paul Ryan. But a hundred of, I don't know how many kids were there, but a hundred of the eighth graders refused to have their picture taken with them. A big class photo with Paul Ryan. Here's one of the kids. I don't like to take a picture with somebody that I can't associate with. 13 years old. What are you talking about? What if it's someone you can't associate with? You're 13. Let's say somebody's not nice to me at school, for example. I wouldn't take a picture with them, probably, this 13-year-old said. And said that, he went on to say that uh, Speaker Ryan is a man who puts his party before his country. What you, what's, what's going on? Why did this happen? This happened because 8th graders have lived, so 13 years. They're 13 years old. 8th graders have lived in a hyper-politicized world. For their entire lives. They know no different. They've grown up and they've stewed in this world where you are to hate everyone with a different opinion. Like, think of this sentence. This is such a little mini, like they are university social justice warriors in training. What kind of line is this? I don't take a picture with somebody that I can't associate with. Why can't you associate with Speaker Ryan? Why can't, are you saying Speaker Ryan won't associate with you? What are you like? What are you talking about? That's that's such a nonsensical social justice warrior thing to say. You're 13 years old. This is this is the new normal, or at least this is the normal that that they are used to. So I was reading an article this weekend in uh, Road and Track magazine about the now. If there's any motorcycle people listening now, uh, I am I am prepared to be rebuked on the pronunciation of this, but the Hayabusa Hayabusa type motorcycle. So there's an article from uh, Jack Barreth. He says, it's a phrase I, the, the Hayabusa effect, the Hayabusa effect. He said, it's a phrase I coined many years ago after meeting a fellow who owned a turbocharged Suzuki Hayabusa. This was the first time I've heard of such a machine. Nobody needs a turbocharged Hayabusa. <laughs> 
After all, the bone stock Hayabusa, the one they will cheerfully sell to novice teens for about 11 grand, rips the quarter mile in under 10 seconds. And with the factory fitted speed limiter removed, it's good for 202 miles per hour. A Hayabusa will kill you quicker than just about anything. The task has not yet been invented that requires a faster motorcycle than the Suzuki Hayabusa. Yet, there are plenty of turbo Hayabusas out there. And every turbo Busa owner I've ever met tells me the exact same thing. They say, at first, the Hayabusa seemed crazy fast. But I got used to it. And I wanted something that gave me the same thrill the Busa did when I first got it. So think about, so it's called the Hayabusa effect. All right, you get something that's crazy, totally unnecessary, out of control fast, and then you use it for a while, and you it's like normal, and now you need something else. Think about it this way. We were never designed as human beings to travel any faster than we can run. Right? That's how we were designed. How fast can you run? That's, that's it. That's as fast as we were supposed to go. And then we got on the back of a horse. And then we invented planes and then rocket ships. And in a blink of an eye, truly a blink of an eye, 200 years of, human, of our human history, most recent human history, 200 years, that's nothing. We went from, and the story I've shared a million times, Ulysses S. Grant getting on a train saying, this is insanely fast, eight miles per hour. It's like we've reached the pinnacle of human travel at eight miles an hour. We went from that to a motorcycle that can blow past 145 like it's nothing. And we just get used to it. And I think we've all experienced a little bit of this in our, in our lives, right? If you're leaving your driveway in the morning and you hit the 30 miles per hour zone and it's, it's fine. But at the end of the day, you come off the highway, right? You get off the five or the 15 and then you get off the highway and going down to 30, it's like you're not even moving. All right, so, we've, so we all get that relativity. Here's why I bring this up, though, because this is nothing insightful or, or special. It's a, we can use a million analogies like this with drugs or anything else, right? You start with one drug and then you need a bigger high, 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 you get more and more, more. Here's the key. This is what the, 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 the writer, uh, Jack Barra, said in uh, Road and Track magazine. He said, it's also worth noting that adapted to, so in this case, you're adapted to the speed of the motorcycle. He says, adapted to doesn't necessarily mean became highly competent at operating. He said, I've coached a lot of supercar drivers who were just playing bored by the way their Ferraris accelerated in a straight line, but were a danger to themselves and anyone around them at any cornering. So moving away from cars and motorcycles, we'll move away from the metaphor and into my point, into politics and how we view this political world. We are going faster than ever. Faster than ever. It's insane. Everything's in hyperdrive. I hope you were able to turn off radio and TV for, for most of uh, the Memorial Day weekend, right? I kind of just de-stress for a second, but everything's on hyperdrive, uh, hyperdrive uh, overdrive, just hypertension all the time. And it's our new normal. We're used to it, right? We've adapted to it. But that doesn't mean we're highly competent at operating at this speed. It doesn't mean we're good at living in this gear. We may be used to it, but it doesn't mean we're good at it. We may have adapted to it, but it doesn't mean it's healthy. And I think the fact that we have eighth graders who go to D.C. and there's the Speaker of the House and they say, oh, pff, I refuse to have my picture taken with him. <laughs> what? You're 13 years old. Go take your picture with the Speaker of the House. 
I think the fact that we have eighth graders, 13 year olds saying that, I think it means we're not controlling our political liquor very well. Does that, I, I'm going to mix up a bunch of analogies here, but does that, you, are you with me? We're not handling the, the, the tight turns in our Ferraris very well if uh, we have 13 year olds acting like this. If our animosity and our politicalness is overflowing so much that eighth graders are drowning in it. And they have enough hatred and political animosity in their hearts for a group of adults, <laughs> but, but they're 13. Like, like we have way too much ourselves in. We've adapted to this political hyperdrive, but I'm not sure we can handle it. And I guarantee it's not helping. I just thought of that going back to Mad Dog Mattis's point about uh, the biggest thing he's worried about is lack of unity, lack of fundamental friendliness. Fundamental friendliness. 13-year-olds. No, no. I don't take pictures of people I can't associate or that won't associate with me. Or what, like, what are you talking about? We got to rein this back in. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show on The Blaze. Radio Network's Bubba Word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Probably soon. I don't have a crystal ball, but I mean, everybody I've talked to is going back and again and again and again to the, uh, well, they call it the threat of automation. Right. And, and like the headlines that I'm seeing are how computers are going to uh, to steal our jobs. And I I don't really know that it makes sense to anthropomorphize it. Quite, I mean, I, I don't I don't <laughs> right. think the computers are, you know, going around like twirling their mustache and laughing maniacally. But um, it's going to happen. I mean, it's going to happen just as surely as as the Internet messed up the TV and the TV messed up cinema and cinema disrupted radio and radio messed up the newspapers and Kindle screwed up the booksellers and so it goes. But I don't think it's anything to, to panic over. It's going to happen. But as it relates to the minimum wage conversation and as it relates to labor and management, the only thing I can add to it is that with my foundation, we try and remind people that learning a skill that's actually in demand negates the whole conversation. If you can weld, if, you can, if you're a plumber, if you're an electrician, if, if you're willing to learn a skill that has a pre-existing demand, then you don't have to constantly negotiate and talk about a few extra dollars in order to stay in a position that, frankly, I, I don't know how you advance in that kind of thinking. That's right. Right. So, so our philosophy is pretty simple. Um, if you have a skill and that skill is in demand, you can work where you want and you can write your own ticket. If you don't, you're going to have to hope the next negotiation works out and the next minimum wage position falls favorably in your direction, which strikes me as fatalistic. It's Lighting Crusaders. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. Remember last week we talked about, there's a headline someone sent me, Sacramento Bee or something about how um, after school programs are struggling to survive. And I was thinking, why? Why are after school programs struggling to survive? And it's because of the minimum wage. 
And we've talked many times about uh, different charities, right? different not-for-profit organizations that are in big trouble because of the minimum wage. But I, I know we've shared these before, but I just want to I want to bring them up again because I want to make sure we just don't do a quick flash in the pan and then you never hear this again. I want to make sure we are armed with this reality. Although I fear it's, it's too late for this to even matter uh, anymore. But I have the employment numbers here specifically for San Diego. So I want to take this from the theoretical, from the prediction to the reality of what happened. So... I have the, this is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. This is from the federal government. These are the official employment numbers. And I just put it down to San Diego. This is true for every city across the country. This is true for every place where they've done this before. But they take a line. We made a line graph over time from 2006 until today. And there's two lines. One are restaurant jobs. And the other line is non-restaurant jobs. Now, most restaurant jobs are minimum wage. So we have employment growth of restaurant jobs over time and employment growth of non-restaurant jobs. Again, restaurant jobs, usually minimum wage jobs. So over time, they follow a very similar trend. They, they match each other pretty perfectly. And they both saw a major downturn in 2007 with the recession. For the last five years or so, the non-restaurant jobs stayed steady about a 1% to 2% growth. It's about the last five years, 1% to 2% growth. And restaurant jobs actually did a little bit better. Uh, they had about a 2% growth, uh, pretty steady for the last five years. But then in California, excuse me, in San Diego, July 2016, dropped. The, the restaurant jobs dropped. That's when the minimum wage went up to 1050. Non-restaurant jobs stayed the same. So the minimum wage, when the minimum wage went up, re- restaurant jobs went from a 2% growth to a 0% growth. So there were no new jobs. That, that's important. It's not like people lost their jobs at this point. There were just no new jobs. Then the next minimum wage went into effect. January 2017, beginning of this year, minimum wage went up to 11.50. Non-restaurant jobs stayed about the same, 1%, 2% growth. Restaurant jobs dropped to negative 4% growth. Negative 4%. So that now we're losing jobs. Now, again, this is the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Restaurant jobs, because of the minimum wage, dropped a net loss of jobs. Again, this is not my prediction. This is what happened. This is what always happens. City after city that has ever done this, the same thing always happens. Yet still, the people who, who want this are lifted up as the heroes and protectors of the lower skilled. We'll never understand that. And just wait till the minimum wage goes up to $15 is going to be even more drastic. One more micro clip here. My thing with the minimum wage and with automation and with all of it is that anything we do that knocks the bottom rungs off of the ladder that we all must surely climb. Yes, for sure. Is self-defeating. So if getting to 15 bucks an hour hastens automation and therefore eliminates thousands of opportunities for kids who by the way are not just learning how to flip a burger but how to tuck their shirt in of course how to show up on time all this basic stuff i mean how else do you learn that except by being uh in your first or second job we're going to arbitrage logic right out of the equation and then r2d2 take a bow that's not bad. Add the special size. Um, that's the big, that's long term. That's the bit, losing the bottom rung of the ladder. That's the real consequence 
of the minimum wage. So to bring it back around, the guaranteed minimum income, it will probably happen, but eventually, not anytime soon. 20 years, I think. It'll be a little while. Um, but it'll probably have to exist, quote unquote, have to exist because so few people will ever experience that bottom rung of the economic ladder and they will therefore not learn the skill sets necessary to even hold the job. So people will just be incapable of holding a job at all. And we're one step closer to idiocracy and guaranteed minimum income. Everyone makes 40 grand a year, 50 grand a year, whatever it is for doing literally nothing. What kind of society is that? But that's where we're headed and minimum wage is making it happen. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater, Slater, thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. So um, the the outrage over the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, remember, it was, yeah, it was last weekend when Trump went to, to Brussels and the reports afterwards said that uh, all the, the European leaders, the French, the German leaders were, were so, so rattled, uh, scared after meeting with President Trump scared about some of the things he said in, in some closed door meetings. And I heard reports about this and I'm like, oh, geez, like what, what did he say? What, did, what happened? I, would, I wish we could find out. And then I keep reading all these articles and, and we know what he said, or at least the gist of it. The reason that all these European leaders were so shaken to their core is because President Trump spoke out against the Paris Climate Agreement. <laughs> and they don't know what to do. They can't, they can't. I don't think they could go on with a president of the United States who wouldn't agree with the Paris Climate Agreement. So let's talk for a few minutes about what a worthless piece of nothing the Paris Climate Agreement is. And... If you could compare what I'm going to tell you here with the manufactured outrage that you've heard on TV these last few days, the panel discussions about how much he hates the planet, the speeches from Al Gore about how time is running out. Just give me a trillion dollars before it's too late. That, like all that. Compare all that that you've heard with the truth that I'm going to share here. First, I want to start off with Secretary of State John Kerry, then Secretary of State John Kerry at the Paris event, right? This is at the Paris 2015 climate conference. Now I, I have the audio of this, but I don't have it in front of me here. So I'm just going to read what he said. Okay. But I promise you, he said it. I have the video of it. It's out there. It's not a hidden thing. He said at the agreement or at the, in Paris, he said, the fact is that even if every American biked to work, carpooled to school, used only solar panels to power their homes, if, if we each planted a dozen trees, if we somehow eliminated all of our domestic greenhouse gas emissions, guess what? That still wouldn't be enough to offset the carbon pollution coming from the rest of the world. Make note of that word carbon pollution. We'll talk about that later. 
if all the industrialized nations went to zero emissions, remember what I just said, all the industrial emissions went down to zero emissions. It wouldn't be enough. Not when more than 65% of the world's carbon pollution comes from the developing world. 65% of the world's carbon pollution comes from the developing world. So in there, I, I don't exactly know if he's including these countries. I imagine he is. Uh, India, China, and Russia. Now, these are three, I mean, two of the most populous nations, India and China, and, and then Russia. And these three nations have decided to do nothing with the Paris <laughs> Agreement. Let me get a little more specific here. This Paris Agreement leading up to it, so much hype, so much political capital, legacies were... Uh, you know, on trial here, right? like legacies were put to, on, were at st on stake, right? And there was so much hype that literally any agreement was going to be celebrated and lifted up as the great, a great victory for the planet. Even if the agreement did nothing, all the world leaders needed to say, we did something. Are you with me? They just truly needed to say we did something. And it all started a year prior, 2014 in Lima, Peru, where it was decided that each country would come up with their own plan to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. This is called the uh, INDC, the Intended Nationally Determined Contribution. The Intended Nationally Determined Contribution. So each plan was determined by the country itself which means there's no objective standard of measurement required by any country. This is a little tricky, but like one country could say, we're going to reduce this. Another country could say, well, we're going to reduce this. And another country could say, well, we're going to, and it's, they're all three different things because every country is allowed to do their own thing or was, so it's, there's no standard measurement between countries. That's point number one. Now, just to define this a little clear, take India, you got 1.1 billion people in India. India could come back, and, and this is what they did. They came back and they said, all right, here's how much greenhouse gases we plan on emitting over the next 30 years. We could emit more than that, but we're not going to. Barack Obama deemed that a great victory. He deemed that a reduction. Because India said, let me, let me, so let's say India emits 10 pounds of greenhouse gases today. Just roll with it. They say, listen, by 2030, we're going to emit a thousand pounds of greenhouse gases. Now we're doing 10. We're going to emit a thousand. We could emit 10,000 if we want it, but we're not going to, we're just going to emit a thousand. Oh, what a great reduction. Sign this agreement. So then they sign the agreement and then uh, Barack Obama and everyone else in the Western world can travel around the world talking about what a great agreement they came to. And look, the whole world agrees with us. That catastrophic climate change is going to kill us all. Meanwhile, India didn't do anything. China didn't do anything. Russia hasn't done anything. None of the developing world countries have done anything at all. So point number one, there's no objective standard of measurement. Point number two, there's no actual reductions. And point number three is there's no punishment. There's no mechanism to keep people accountable here. There, there's no binding agreements. There's no sanctions proposed. There's no legal consequences. It's all just global peer pressure. That's it. 
So you're saying, well, why did anyone sign on to this? Well, the Western countries signed on to it because they wanted to pat themselves on the back. They wanted to lift themselves up for doing something historic. And that's why you hear so much about how historic this agreement was. The only reason the developing world signed on to it is because they got $100 billion in foreign aid. So currently the, the entire, uh, it's called the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. They give $100 billion in foreign aid to the developing world. This doubles it. So now, we, now they get another $100 billion. So they, they're like, okay, fine. They signed, they signed. They're not going to do anything, but they signed it. So it's really odd because you have an environmentalist group division here. You got some groups who are very connected to the administration saying, oh, this is amazing. It's the greatest thing ever. It's historic. Oh, it's it's so fantastic. The planet is saved, blah, blah. Then you got these other environmentalists who are more in it for the cause, like they're in it for the actual environment as opposed to the money and the power. And they looked at the agreement and said, well, well, this is, this is a total fraud. This is, this thing, this does nothing. This It would be one thing if I, as a conservative, came here and said, listen, thank goodness we're getting out of this climate agreement. It is dangerous. It is wrong. It's going to impoverish everyone and blah, blah, blah. I'm not even saying that. I'm saying this thing's just stupid. And there's no reason to be in it. I mean, it does cost $100 billion. It will raise our electric rates. Like, it is bad, but it's not, it's not the end of the world. Just It's nothing either. Let's like take it or leave it kind of. So here, I'll end here. If all the countries followed through with their promised cuts, if all of them did, which none of them will, but if they all did, then according to their models, the temperature of the planet will be reduced uh, by 0.05 degrees Celsius by the year 2100. <laughs> and that's if everyone follows through. Think five hundredths of a, de- of a degree. Like, what are you talking about? You can't even measure that. It's absurd. The whole thing is just, it's just nothing. So backing out of it, like, yeah, of course you would. But there's no reason to stay in it. There's no reason even for it to exist other than these Western leaders can uh, now tell you how wonderful they are. 1-800-988-900-3393. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Slater, Crusaders, America is the greatest country in the world. Thanks so much for being here. Hour two of the Mike Slater Show. I'm really grateful that you're here. Slater Radio on Twitter. We can hang out throughout the show. Uh, we have the the craziest story for you, and I'm really glad that uh, John and his son uh, Isaac were able to to be here and tell us all of it. I, I wanted to tell the story the other day, but I it it like I can't like my brain can't handle it, and I it, there's no way to make sense of it because it doesn't make sense. So we had to go right to the source. And uh, John Duarte is here. How are you, sir? I'm good, Mike. Good to be here. Really glad you guys are here. So uh, tell us about Duarte Nursery and, and where you guys are. Well, Duarte Nursery is a family-owned company owned by my brother and I now, but it's a, actually a multi-generational company that my parents and my brother and I founded in 1989. Uh, after being in the nursery business here in San Diego County, we actually had Otay Nursery out on Otay Mesa from 76 until 88. Um, that kind of went away. We moved to Modesto in 89 and started Duarte Nursery, where we produce grapevines, almond trees, pistachio trees, walnut trees for farmers throughout California and the Western United States. Nice. Okay, so why is the federal government uh, fining you 
potentially $2.8 million. And also for something that's for wheat, right? So uh, uh, give us the story here. Well, in, in 2012, we bought a property up in Northern California above Sacramento where there's lots of water. If you're growing crops and you've heard about it in the last couple of years, farmers and water and the drought, it's just a great place to grow tree and vine crops because okay. there is a great groundwater resources. There's great surface water resources. So we thought, you know, we'd diversify our investments and maybe buy some land up north to one day put into orchard crops and uh, move where the water is. Okay. Good idea for any farmer. Sure. And so we weren't ready to put the orchards in. So we planted a wheat crop in the uh, winter of 2012. What so was there before when you bought it? It was grain raised rolling grassy rangeland. You just see cows out there. There's a few wheat fields out there. There's a few orchards in the area. But at the time we bought this property, it was just grazing land with cows on it, barbed wire fences. Um, show me, can we talk about what you just show me here? So, the, so sure. the, the, all right, so I'll just tell you the conclusion of this before we just literally went on the air a second ago is uh, John goes, yeah, and you know, the Mexican tortilla riots. And I was like, what are you talking, is, is that what you told me, the what? Well, okay, so <laughs> in 2000, if, if you look at this land, it was farmed to wheat in, two, in the 1970s and early 1980s when wheat prices were very high. Okay. And so it was profitable to farm wheat. And this, this land isn't the best wheat growing ground in the world, but it's good wheat growing ground when prices of wheat are high. So from the 90s through 2000s, this was just grazing land. Wheat prices were very low. I've got a chart here, but yep. you don't need a chart. In 2000, remember back in 2010, 11, 12, there was a world food shortage. We had the Arab Spring popped up greatly because there's a global food shortage mm -hmm. and food prices were, were going above what people in, in the Middle East could afford to pay for food. And that caused a lot of the political instability there. There were, in Mexico City, there were the tortilla riots where the price of corn had gone up so high that tortillas were getting expensive. And a lot of people in Mexico couldn't afford food in their, in their weekly budgets. And that was causing political instability. So as, you know, being American farmers, providing national and international food security, we planted a wheat crop in a wheat field Makes sense. So that had been formed, farmed to wheat previously. So supply was low, prices go higher, that sends a signal out to the marketplace. You, you are a farmer, you said, great, I can make some money here growing some wheat, we'll provide some food for the world, sounds great. That's what you do. Yeah. So you bought the, bought the land, planning to one day grow some vines and trees, but you said, hey, in the meantime, let's grow some wheat. Yes. Perfect. Thanks. So you see, you saw a picture of the land. This is rolling grassy hills. And, you know, every field in America, every farmland in America has a tiny bit of a low spot. It has a drainage. It has some part of the land where the water either pools or collects to run off. It would have to, right? Because what else would it do? Yeah. In some cases, you get an amount of water that percolates through the soil and sandier soils. But most of the time, land has wet spots and low spots. Okay, so so the water that used to irrigate or rain or whatever, it pools in this one area. How big of an area are we talking about? Oh, some of these vernal pools, they call them, could be as big as your living room, some as small as your couch, others as big as your house. But in okay. that range, these aren't, these in 450 acre wheat field, these look really small. Okay. And, and in this property, out of the 450 acres, maybe 20 acres or 22 acres, of the property made up this type of low depressions and wetlands. Okay, so sorry, so one more time. So 450 acres, you said how many acres are the? 22. Okay. So, so not, and, and different pockets of it. And they're just and sprinkled across the property. Okay. So you'll never see a wheat field where someone's gone around these. You, they're always farmed through. You, you, you can't destroy them. What does that them. mean exactly, farmed through? Well, you gotta take a disc or a plow and you've gotta just till the ground through the, across the whole field and you go up and down over these and, and till them. Our tillage was four to seven inches deep. So 
you put cows back on there a couple of years later, you can't even see where the ground was tilled. Yeah, okay. I mean, it it goes away. So you just you just farm is you just keep going. You did you plow over it yeah. just like you're plowing the field, whatever. Okay. No, nobody's ever pulled a permit to plow these things. Nobody's ever gone around them in their plowing operations. Or okay. Nobody I've seen. Um, <clears throat> so we get a, we get a letter from the Army Corps of Engineers one day in 2012 while we have our farming activities going out there, and he says. Your deep ripping. Now, deep ripping is what you do before you put orchard to vineyards in. It can be three feet deep. It can be four feet deep. It can be seven feet deep. But you're, you're going out there and you're just ripping the ground up and breaking the subsoil. And, you know, if you do deep rip a vernal pool like this with that kind of an implement, you're going to destroy its hydrology. It's no longer going to perch water, which is the idea with deep ripping is okay. you want good drainage. So when you plant orchards and vineyards, the roots get down in the soil and they don't get waterlogged in the spring and winter and the trees and vines don't die. Now, every vineyard and orchardist in California in these types of properties knows that you go around the vernal pools for that. In that situation, because yeah. you, otherwise you would destroy it. You destroy it. You're them. not we, in the market of destroying these. We don't want pools. to destroy them. We've, we've planted vineyards and orchards in other areas. We serve thousands of customers in California that avoid these vernal pools up and down the state. We know the rules and we would have followed them had we been planting a vineyard or orchard. Which they said you were doing, which you were not. Which we were not. So. They, they, they claim we're, di we're ripping three feet deep through these vernal pools. We tell them we're not. How, do they, how would they even know that? They've got one guy as a field agent in five counties in Northern California. And he's <laughs> driving along and he sees an implement out there with a big, you know, a big tillage implement behind it, big tractor with a big tillage implement behind it. Now that implement's got a set wheel. If farmers want to rip a foot deep, they take a three foot deep ripper yeah. or plow and they set the set wheel at a foot. Certainly, that makes sense. You don't have a one foot deep implement and a one and a half wow. foot deep implement. And a so really that's deep. it. So he was just driving by, took a casual observation, Come took on. a few photos on the side of the road. So the, saw there's some mud splashed up because you've got to wait till it rains a little to get some moisture so you can till the ground and um, just decided we were doing this. Now in this County, now this is an ag country up here, like it is up in, in Northern California. You have in every County, you have a, a USDA office with multiple staff members. Um, that's the National Resource Conservation Service that interfaces with farmers on these issues. You have a farm service agency, which deals with kind of the, some of the crop subsidies and whatnot that some crops there are. Um, this was not going to be a subsidized crop in any way. Um, you've got a cooperative um, extension, which is University of California Cooperative Extension with farm advisors work out of to work with um, far, with um, agriculturalists. And then you've got an ag commissioner's office, which has multiple staff members. So there's four offices, state and local, that have multiple staff in each of them to deal with these kinds of issues and farmers. The Army Corps of Engineers has one guy in five counties doing a flyby. And then when he decides that he doesn't like what he sees on my property, rather than taking an effort to understand what he sees on my property, he sends me a cease and desist notice. Uh, a cease and desist to what? Farming the field? Yeah. Cease and desist all operations in waters of the United States. Um, so we send a letter back to him and say, hey, have one of our, our environmental attorney, Rhonda Lucas, who's worked with us for years on a few issues, sends a letter back and say, hey, exactly what do you mean? Freedom of Information Act. Show us all the information you've got on my client's property. Why do you believe they're farming wetlands or destroying wetlands? They send back a second letter says, you've been kicked up to enforcement in Sacramento now. Tell us everything you did. Oh, my gosh. So the, bur <laughs> the burdens of proof's not even on it, yeah. them anymore to prove how they... So, so this could have been stopped in a rational world with that guy swinging by your front door, yeah. knocking on the door and saying, hey, John, you know, what's... Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm from I'm, here. What's this thing? What are you doing? I offered to meet him out there. I said, I'll meet you out of the property. We'll show you what we're doing. We're not... We're is, not that easy, is that easy to prove to a rational person, hey, we're not tilling 
what did you say, seven feet? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a fact, and it's, you know, you can take a piece of rebar out into a field, and you can stick it in the ground. Exactly, that's what I'm getting I mean, at. <laughs> you, you're like, how deep can you it, pull, push it down? Yeah, you, that's how deep the tillage is going. You walk around, you do that a bit, you've got a very clear idea of what, what actually is happening. So the whole thing could have been stopped right there. Could have been stopped. Could have been stopped right there. Unreal. Can we take a break? Can you stick around, John? Um, so Duarte uh, Farm, nursery, right? Nursery and yes, trees. Yes, Duarte tree. Nursery. Um, Modesto and the fine that you're facing right now is it right that it's 2.8 million? 2.8 million in fines, but they also want me to give 20 to 30 million dollars to wetland mitigation. No banks. way! Yes, for something that you didn't. Yeah, they you want. Didn't know. They they want me to give money to private interests that can then decide what to do with that Whoa, money. Well, hold on. This is a whole new element to the story. What private interests? Wetland mitigation banks. These are private banks that, that do wetland mitigation. If somebody wants to build a shopping mall over some vernal pools or something like a non-exempt type of uh, impact on a vernal pool, they can buy mitigation credits. Now they're trying to tell agriculture, we have to transfer huge amounts of our wealth to mitigation banks if we want to continue producing food. With any basis on, like, can they force you to do that? Or are they just threatening you to do well, that? Well, they're asking the judge, to, as part of her ruling, to force us to give 20 to $30 million Whoa. to wetland mitigation banks. Oh, there's a whole new level to the story yeah. there. That's so interesting. Think think the, the home lenders that got um, investigated by the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau that were told to give money to ACORN and other inner city yes. urban activist interests. It's the same thing, only rural now. Whoa. All right. All right, really interesting. Uh, John, his son, uh, Isaac, is here to talk about this. Like, why are these wetlands a thing? And, and the word navigable waterways, that's going to be the key word of the next sentence, navigable waterways. one 900 Mike Slater Show on The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater Slater, thanks for being here so we're talking with uh, john duarte from duarte nurseries in northern california this is a, a remarkable story for a couple of reasons first of all um people are it's a story about regulations and environmentalism but businesses and business owners are hit with these in, these regulations all the time and so many business owners are afraid to speak out against them so many business owners are afraid to to go public with it. They don't want to rock the boat anymore. And they just get taken for a ride time and time and time again. And that's why I'm so grateful that that Duarte and the Duarte family uh, has decided not to take this line down and they're going to fight it, even if it means costing them a lot more money. If it can stop the government from from doing this with every other farm, which they will, why would they stop <laughs> unless stopped? And, and I'm really grateful that, uh, that John, you are, are speaking out against this. John said that they're, that they're trying to make him uh, give how much? 20 to 30 million? Yeah. To, that's insane. To uh, private environmentalist groups, basically. So, the, so um, wetland mitigation groups. So, John, let me see if I, can, if I can rearticulate this. Let me know if there's anything wrong. So, you have your 450 acres. About 22 acres of that splattered around the whole area right there. Are these pools of, of water? You show me a picture, though. Like, 
I don't see water in them, though. No, right? don't, don't picture water in the wetlands. Don't, that, that's the first thing you got to get okay. past here. So what are This they? is dry grassland with a few low spots where water pools and puddles after the rainstorm for a couple weeks. So if it rains, you know, in California here, it rains, you know, December, January, February, March, April a little bit. After that, for the entire summer and through the fall, these are not wetlands. These are bone dry. So what's the benefit of them from an environmentalist perspective? Projecting a bit. But, I mean, one thing is they harbor a little, do you remember sea monkeys? When you're a kid? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Those are fairy shrimp. Now, the fairy shrimp have survived two ice ages. <laughs> They're up and down California. They and can't all handle Duarte nurseries, though. They can't, they can't make it. But God, don't plant weed. I mean, <laughs> so, so, that's, so there's like little microorganisms in these pools. Yeah, they're little, uh, little mollusks of some crustaceans of some sort. That, they do what? That exist as an endangered species. Do um, like birds eat them? Are we part of like the You know, they're, they're very chain? ephemeral. I mean, they, they survive as dry little eggs in the... Uh, in the vernal pools most of the year, they can survive for years as just dry little, basically, spores. And then oh. when the water comes, they, they hatch and they populate and they have a little sea monkey habitat life oh. for a few weeks. And then they go back, when the water dries up, they go back into very small little eggs and oh, really? they just wait for the next rain no event. No kidding. Okay, yeah. so, so you got these on your land and your uh, plows, when you're plowing wheat, uh, just go right over them. They go, go right over them, them. yep. And they just go, how, how deep do they go? The, your the, plows. the plowing we did was not 36 inches deep as the field agent for the Army Corps thought it was. When they put a team of 10 federal inspectors on the property to do the expert report for the Department of Justice as they prosecute us, they were out there for two weeks. They dug up the, the vernal pools with an excavator two feet deep, three feet deep, 20 different Which times. Which did way more damage than locations. you ever did. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. And then came back, and after 20 vernal pool excavations and, and um, pebble distribution studies in my plow furrows and all kinds of other bonehead wow. things, they came back and said the tillage was four to seven inches deep. So hold on. I can't get past the fact that they absolutely did more damage to these vernal pools than you ever did. But they no. filled the hole back up. Yeah. Most of the time. So so they so they came to the conclusion that you did. That no, we didn't we weren't plowing in in any depth that would destroy these things. So what's what's so what's what now? Because if they came back and said it's only a couple inches, what's the problem? We don't know. Aren't you read like, this? Listen, listen to this. Here, here is their um, a quote from the Department of Justice expert report after putting a dozen guys out there for or a dozen people out there for two weeks. How could, first, I'm sorry, I couldn't get past the expense of the taxpayer for that. Right, like, there's nothing else going on in the Department yeah. of Justice's world that they had to send how many people? They sent twelve people out <laughs> for twelve days. Stayed in Tehama County, where they, you have to stay at the Indian Casino because there's not very many places to stay up there, and they. They investigated. They did pebble distribution studies in my plow furrows. Wow. They mapped. In fact, they mapped and proved that all the vernal pools. They have a previous mapping from 1994 and another one from 2012. And they're all there. In 2014, they 16. They did another mapping and proved that all of the vernal pools are exactly where they were in 1994 and 2012. Okay, so case closed. What's the problem? It's not pro closed yet. You've got to listen to their narrative. All right, let's hear. It. From the, from the experts, from the Department of Justice expert team, if these plant associations were compared to neighborhoods of people in a small town, no, then I the don't. tillage could be compared to a tornado that blows in and completely uproots and rearranges the entire functioning community <gasps> of neighborhoods. The furrow tops now serve as small mountain ranges, microtopographic high spots. That's your tax dollars at work. That's their that's their thesis theory of prosecution on this tape. They case. just compared a little a little vernal pool, a little wetland the size of a living room, 
to and you telling it to a hurricane coming through and uprooting a community? Yes. Yes, they did. It's in their report. I'm only using their stuff. All the photos I've, well, the, the, the excavator, uh, that's UFO, my photo. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the vernal pool mapping. I have here, what is normal crop rotations? Normal farming practices are supposed to be exempt under the Clean Water Act. We're not even supposed to be talking about this. They have in their expert report, a page I showed you a little bit ago, Mike, Farm Knowledge, a complete manual of successful farming written by recognized authorities in all parts of the country based on sound principles and actual experiences of real well, farmers. That's, that's a good thing. Yeah, it is, except it was prepared exclusively for Sears and Roebuck Company in 1914. <laughs> so what are they using What are they using that for? That is, that is explaining why what I was doing, planting wheat when it's profitable and grazing cows when it's not, is not normal farming. What they think is normal farming was defined in 1914 farming guide from Sears and Roebuck. There's no way. What are you talking about? Like, where did they print that? That's, this was in the, just... There were 14 pages of this in the Department of Justice expert report for this prosecution. The Department of Justice... I can't... Sorry, John. I got I to gotta repeat this. It's like... So you're telling me the Department of Justice at the end of their investigation to try and... And what were they trying to pin you on on this one? Like, like you shouldn't be growing wheat? That, that if it was a normal farming practice, it would be expressly exempt under the Clean Water Act. The Clean Water Act is actually a very well composed, very well negotiated piece of legislation that solved a real problem. We had drinking water problems back when the Clean Water Act went through. There's no question it was necessary and good. And the protections for farmers are very robust. These guys have to go to the moon and Mars yeah. to find pr prosecution theories to prosecute me under the Clean Water Act. It's a very well-constructed law. Where I, and so, so what, so what do they doing, have to prove? Yeah, they have to prove that you... They have to prove that, A, I was in wetlands, that I destroyed the wetlands, and C, that I w wasn't conducting what are normal farming practices. And the, the, the not normal farming practice you did was growing wheat. Was growing wheat in a wheat field with four to seven inch tillage to suggest that, it, that farming wheat when it's profitable and not farming it when it's not profitable isn't part of a normal crop rotation. According they referred to a 1914 farm guide from Sears and Roebuck Company. Oh my goodness. Total shakedown. Wow, yeah. it's a shakedown on all these farmers to get the money. The Sheriff of Nottingham all over yes, again. To get the money to these environmentalist groups. Unbelievable. 1-888-900-3393, Mike Slater Show on The Blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. Hey, Slider Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. So, insane story. I don't know if we can go all the way back through it again to, to recap, but just know that they're being fined uh, $2.8 million. And then, and then the shakedown, which I think is, is the craziest part of this whole story, which is on top of that, why don't you also give a cool 20, 30 mil to these environmentalist groups that will then give us money to get reelected um, and then we'll go away? I mean, it's a total shakedown. It's really not too different. The other day, we were talking to uh, City Councilmember Nascondito. And uh, long story, but they wanted to put an immigration detention center in Escondido, and the city council said no. So the ACLU, ACLU sued the city for $7 million and said, well, we'll go away for half a mil. And like, you, it's just a total, like, total shakedown moves all the time. Did you give another analogy off the air too, right? About the, oh, about the banks. Yeah, you see with the, um, a lot of the home mortgage brokers and lenders got investigated by the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau that's part of Dodd-Frank. 
and you see it in the Wall Street Journal's report on this, a number of different articles where the the banks are fined by this kangaroo court and buried in a federal agency with very little accountability and told, hey, you can give $140 million fine to us or you can give us $20 million and give these urban activist ACORN type groups $40 million. Wow. So, so what does the bank do? Do they pay a bigger fine to the government or a, like pay less money, but to these groups that, you know, are against, you know, everything? Yeah. Thing that they stand for, you know, right? like just not good things. Same thing here. So you you're now going to give money to these environmentalist groups who want to rewild California. This is a term we've talked about a lot on the show. Can you explain rewilding in California? Well, I don't think anyone can because we don't have the <laughs> wild we had before farming. We used to have buffalo, you know. So if you're going to try and return California rangelands or California to its natural state, farm ground into its quote natural state, exactly, you've got to introduce species that are no longer here and we really can't manage our communities with them here. We can't have giant buffalo herds anymore. We can't have huge packs of wild wolves. It doesn't work. They're not compatible with us. Um, so if you wanna rewild these areas, you'll take the cows off of them, you'll take the farming off of them and they'll grow, but they'll overgrow. There'll be huge fire hazards. There'll be huge air quality disadvantages for us with that. Um, it's back, what is it, about 10 years ago, you had George Bush in the White House and you had the, the Healthy Forest Act passed because you saw just east of LA, all the chaparral bushlands had overgrown and were, were, were burning at a point where they were threatening cities and, threatening, and definitely devastating the air quality down here. We've already got impacts. So this rewilding strategy is a very difficult strategy to take forward and picture how it actually works. The farmers farming this land are doing so very sustainably. They've got soil conservation, They've got um, optimizing the use of the land. They're producing foods. So there's an economic activity that allows them to afford over these millions and millions of acres practices that keep the dirt in the dirt, in the soil, that keep the ground um, optimally beneficial to both, as both habitat and as food producing. One fallacy is that agriculture consumes natural resources. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. If you actually look at the wild and you look at species diversity and you compare wild, unfarmed ground to irrigated agriculture. Irrigated agriculture is a biodiversity resource. We have more coyotes, we have more rabbits, we have more squirrels, we have more wildlife in irrigated agriculture than would be there without irrigated agriculture. Why is that? Because we bring water in. If yeah. you bring water into a, in, onto lands, you, you create life. Yeah. And you, you, know, you don't protect every bit of that water only for your farming system, you, you have canals. I live on a creek in Modesto that if the irrigation district wasn't wasn't providing water to that creek through the summer, it wouldn't be, be nearly as biodiverse and beautiful and um, an ecologic resource in the way it is now. So, so when the environmentalists come in and rewild, they're causing a ton of damage to what they say they're trying to do. Yeah, and the same thing's gonna happen out on rangeland. You understand that the, the Western rangeland, the first thing those cattle families did when they went out there was create water resources. They dug shallow wells, they put up stock ponds, they, they trapped water and they created water resources. The wildlife needs that water. There's much more wildlife on grazed um, Bureau land management land mm -hmm. where the farmers are, where the grazers and ranchers are active than where they've been pulled off. If you don't have their commitment to keeping these water resources sustained and available to all types of life out there, you lose the biodiversity on the rangelands. Makes perfect sense. So what do you think drives these environmentalists? Ignorance and power, bad combo. Yeah. I mean, I, I really don't think they fully understand what 
advantages farmers and ranchers bring to the natural resources that we that we conduct our how can, operations in. How can the farmers be the bad guys though? That like out of all the people that you could vilify, like I like I, I don't agree, but I understand the oil executives, right? Let's go after the oil companies, right? They're big bad. Like I get that. I get going after the bankers, the greedy bankers. I don't go going after the farmers. I don't like where does that come from? I I don't know. I um I'm really happy to have the opportunity on your show here in an urban market, although one I'm very familiar with because I grew up here, but to be able to come into an urban market and really share our story from the agricultural point of view and explain to people, this is what hurts your food prices. This is what hurts jobs and and our economy in rural America. These, These types of government overreach and abuses matter to everybody because they come in 31 flavors. I mean, this isn't the only thing governments can do to suppress jobs, hurt rural communities, and, and take away your rights. There's other examples. This one's just my little story. Well, your little story, that's tens of millions of dollars. Um, and I, I don't want to be dramatic. Help, I mean, help us understand, like, could be the end of your company? Or what do you do? I mean, well, your son's right here. John or Isaac, do you want to take over the company? Is that the plan? <laughs> you going to be a farmer too? Yeah, so... Um, or, you, or is he in a band? Is John, Isaac going to be a musician? <laughs> Instead, he's like, I'm rebelling against the family business. <laughs> He's a good uh, kid. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of scary as a future farmer for California just to see all the stuff that can happen. I, Like most people, I just don't understand how this can be something a government can do. Um, and so it's really kind of scary to me. It's I don't understand what the incentive could be for young farmers if uh, things like this keep happening to uh, to the current farmers we have. Like, why would I want to farm if this could happen to me? You know? and, and we desperately need you to farm <laughs> we desperately need that because i don't i don't know how and i'm not growing my own food so anything we do that gets in the way of people like isaac you farming is a big problem a big major problem yeah well look what we did to a whole generation of biotechnology researchers all the kids that the, the best and brightest that went to tech schools to learn how to make gmo corn or weed or apples and um we basically from the left bastardized that technology into being something evil and took the companies who invested in that and all the people, all the young people who invested their energy into being scientists in that area and disenfranchised them on a very arbitrary set of standards against it. Who's anti-technology? I mean, we can make food cheaper, more abundant, more plentiful all over the world. And these kids are stepping up to take science degrees, go to UC San Diego or um, any of the other big, ag schools, Cal Poly, Davis, um, UC Riverside. And instead of making them heroes, which we've always held heroes and farmers in a very high regard, we're lambasting them with with Monsatan and Fishberry and all kinds of insane derogatory accusations for trying to improve our food production systems. So I I get very, very important to me what Isaac said. I hope that some crazy kids in the future want to go into farming. (laughs) But, you know, how do you how do you make a compelling argument when the government treats farmers and business like this. Yes. They can arbitrarily drive, literally drive by your farm and take you down Yeah, while admitting that you never broke the law and that everyone else has always done it this way. And you just happen to be the very first person that we're going to take down on this new arbitrary standard. I'm that's the first, insane. I'm the first one who poked him in the nose. Oh, uh, that's probably right. You're probably right. Yeah. No, you're right. And good for you. Uh, real quick, got to run, but can we talk about navigable waterways? Because this is an important term that started it all. Really. Sure. So you saw President Trump recently wrote a WOTUS directive. Waters of the United States is WOTUS. Now, under the Clean Water Act, it was there to protect waters of the United States from pollution, meaning 
factories dumping their bilge into into rivers and streams and harbors catching fire. Very necessary, very important law at the time it was written in the 70s. What's happened is the waters of the United States jurisdictional limits. Right. What is a river? What is a navigable waterway? What waters does do we actually protect under the Clean Water Act from point source pollution coming out of factories? So this this was originally meant for something like the Mississippi River. Yeah, and it's tributaries and things you could actually float a boat on. Yeah. Or you could dump significant amounts of spillage and waste into. Hence navigable waterways. So yeah. something you can drive a boat down or, or ride a boat down. And so since then, of course, bureaucracies being what they are, they've attempted to expand what is a navigable waterway, both through their agency rules and the courts. And there's been some vague court rulings um, that have allowed the agencies to really step in and claim under the Obama-WOTUS rule that, that President Trump withdrew. He was saying that everything within 1,200 feet of a river, everything within a few hundred feet of a vernal pool, if American Farm Bureau Federation did an important job. They actually mapped certain states what would be a jurisdictional water and subject to this kind of scrutiny yep. in America if we applied Obama's WOTUS rule. It was 95% of America. Unbelievable. And under under Obama's Rotus rule, according to Don Parrish, American Farm Bureau, he said, we looked at your land and we think 100% of this property, you see how it was kind of rolling grasslands, tips and yep. bottoms and everything, would have been jurisdictional wetland under the Obama Rotus rule, meaning that every farmer in America would have to pull a permit to farm their land and produce food. Because if, it's a navigable waterway. Yeah. Or near a navigable waterway. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're talking about isolated wetlands, little tiny pockets of and low spots and dark spots in your grasslands. Yes, you said this little this little little moist ground the size of a couch yeah. in the middle of your field. That's a navigable waterway. And also now we control the land 1,200 feet in every direction from it. Yeah, numbers like that, depending how yeah. big it is and how big the setbacks are. But yes, to where they virtually control all land in America as jurisdictional land under the Clean Water Act. Wow. So, so go, Trump put a stop to that. Yeah. So go, just go look out your backyard. I know when I grew up down here, we had canyons and we had some wildlands in around the neighborhoods. Just look at those wildlands and say, is there any place water collects or pools on these wildlands? Is there a drain? Now start walking and pace 1,200 feet off of that drainage each direction. That is jurisdictional wetland now under the under the bump. So, so Donald Trump is going the right way. I don't think the Trump administration wants any part of this prosecution, but the deep state, the swamp, the prosecution team in the Department of Justice yep. is pushing forward on it. And we're really hoping with your help, with American Farm Bureau, with the Pacific Legal Foundation, who's oh, a very important great. group, they're representing yep, us on, good. The, on the complaint. Um, with their help, we're gonna, we're gonna create a lot of noise and we're hopefully gonna get this on the radar at the highest levels of the administration to where yep. they, can, they can ask this prosecution team Waltz, Tango, Foxtrot, what is this? There's people wake up every day in New York on this, as you said, or in DC, in this prosecution team. Every day they work for the Department of Justice and oh, honey, what are you doing today? Oh, we're going after this farmer in Modesto because <laughs> like, that's their job and that's been their job for a long time. Every, like, that's gotta stop. Go do something important with your life because this guy's trying to feed people and trying to employ people. We Get have a GoFundMe a account. Oh, good, good, where? Duarte stands up on GoFundMe. Uh, we've raised about 30 grand, but a lot of this is coming out of our company's pockets, not yeah. the PLFs. They're they're prosecuting the government for our due process rights, Fifth Amendment rights. Good. We are defending ourselves out of our own accounts at the nursery, and it is hugely straining us. So we have Duarte stands up on GoFundMe. I tell people, I don't know who can give five bucks. I don't know who can give a thousand. Whatever you can give, and then Facebook the heck out of it. Get it out there. Use social media and create awareness. Yeah. Because oh, most, most business owners... They get slammed with this stuff all the time, but don't want to rock the boat. So I'm really glad you're uh, you're out here. D u a r t e Duarte, 
stands up uh, on GoFundMe. John, Isaac, you guys are awesome. Thanks for coming all this way. Let's stay in touch, right? Thanks, Mike. one 888 900 Mike Slater Show on The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, there's there's so many uh, so many angles to the story. As I mentioned earlier, super grateful for the Duarte family for fighting. But how, how about, let's just talk about the growth of bureaucracy here. So this all started with the defin- the definition of the word navigable waterways. Navigable waterways that meant the Mississippi River, like something you could put a you could float a boat down. And now it's expanded. What a perfect example! It's expanded to mean anything where there's water like any place where there's water any little puddle is a navigable waterway do you remember the story of this is i think this i think this is actually just california i can't i can't remember if it was california federal government i think it was federal government actually they were going to regulate they were going to take um regulations that were designed for the oil companies like oil spills and apply them to dairy farms because there's oil in milk Right, there's like natural oils in milk. So to prevent, I, I don't think it was, so in case like there's you spill milk at a dairy farm or milk touches the uh, the ground, they classify that as an oil spill. And it's like what are you talking about? So these dairy farms have to go through all these expenses. So that's an example of the growth of bureaucracy. There's another one: navigable waterways, and we're going to include the Duarte like a puddle on their property. You're counting that as a navigable waterway? Come on! And the shakedown of this. The shakedown's unbelievable. Hey, pay our fine. I mean, if you don't, <laughs> you're going to make it even bigger. Maybe go to jail. Uh, or make this massive donation to this environmentalist group. This is how these environmentalist groups stay in power. It's how they get their money. When the government can, can go after a business, forth, force them to fork over cash to a private group, how is that possible? How is that legal? And this is even after the government admits that they don't have, they didn't destroy a single wetland on their farm. So the entire thing's based on nothing. And they can still shake them down in order to get, uh, get them off their back. And then here's the thing. Duarte, let's say they pay, they pay out. Then what happens? What do they get? Nothing. They're back to zero. I'm so glad they're fighting back against this. And every business needs to fight against this. This is just thuggery. This is theft and deceit and it's horrible it has to stop and it's just infested in dc and you got people in the justice department who every single day go to work for for months now years now so that they can go after the duarte nursery for like get like get a life and hurry up mr trump drain the swamp mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word you're listening to mike slater part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network Later in three, 
two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Slater Crusaders. America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Happy Saturday. Thanks for listening to the Blaze Radio. Really appreciate it. So back in uh, 2011, August 6th, 2011, there was a helicopter crash in Afghanistan and 17 Navy SEALs were killed uh, among, among other Americans too, but 17 Navy SEALs were killed in that crash. One of those SEALs was Aaron Vaughn. His mom and dad and entire family have gone on from that moment to do incredible things. They've started a, a camp for, for military kids Karen recently spoke at the Republican National Convention. You'll remember her speech there. And she just released a book called World Changer, A Mother's Story. And my favorite person, Karen Vaughn, is with us right now. Karen, how are you? I am so good. It's so wonderful to be with you, Mike. Karen, you're amazing. What, like, what is your deal? How, how are you? Yeah. Like, like, look at all the things you and Billy are doing. It's insane. You know, I, I tell you, all we've done, Mike, is just put one foot in front of the other and tried to just walk wherever God led us over these past five and a half years. You know, it's been a remarkable journey, and, and I just feel very honored that, you know, in Aaron's death, his life has been shared so fervently and so, you know, just so powerfully. God's given us so many incredible opportunities to to just let his legacy shine across this nation. So and it's been an extraordinary journey. And you have for sure. taken those opportunities and knocked every single one of them out of the park. Uh, and this book is no different. So this, um, I, I can't wait to read this because, uh, so, you know, I, I'm a new dad. So Jack is now seven yeah. and a half months. Uh, so oh. it's amazing. And oh, I, I know. I, this book, like, I can't wait to read it and have my wife read it. And because we want to raise uh, Jack to be like your son. In, in many ways. Oh. So what's the motivation behind your book here? So thank you so much for that. that and, and you will. I have no doubt you will raise a world changer, no doubt in my mind. But, you know, like I, after Aaron died, I started collecting all of the stories that I could remember about him because I wanted to be able to share them with his children and mm. in full color detail. I didn't want to forget anything. And so I started jotting them all down and, and thinking about writing a book. But it wasn't until I spoke to a couple groups of moms in South Florida that I knew exactly what I was going to do with those stories. And, and Mike, what happened is when I talked to them, I realized that the principles we instilled in our children were not normal principles in today's society. They were kind of stunned at some of the things that I talked about. And so I just was like, wow, we're gonna, I'm going to write a book, and I'm going to fill it with teachable moments and try to kind of recapture America through the home, because I believe that's the only way anything's really going to be different, right, is when we get the homes adjusted and, and understand that we are supposed to be trying to raise children who will go out and change their world and leave legacies. We want legacy-leaving kids. All of us want that. But a lot of people don't have the tools necessary to do that, and I didn't think that was so until I started talking to these moms and realized that, wow, there's been a good generation and a half that's gone by now with a lot of these very basic values missing. Was what was that your goal when you started on this journey of parenting or did you learn it as you went along and kind of stumble into it in ways? I totally stumbled into it. It was Billy's goal. I will say that it was always <laughs> Billy's goal. Yeah. <laughs> and I was a city girl. He was a country boy, you know, who grew up on a farm and we raised our kids on a cattle farm. And, you know, I talk about it in the book that it's, it was just so 
difficult for me, exasperating, honestly, to watch Billy treat Aaron like a young man instead of like a, a baby. And I struggled against it. I, I say in the book, I tell this story that I struggled against it every way I knew how. I mean, I dressed him in white head to toe and even entered him in a beauty review. You know, <laughs> he would not be happy that you shared that. Re- that, that, he that would, he will be, I, I'm praying for forgiveness for him in heaven because I put a picture of him crowned as king of the Troy Tiny Cup in the book. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> But yeah, you know, but Billy always had, he always had the heart to create a man who would change the world. And and he just so many examples. And I put them all in the book of the things I had to let Billy do with Aaron that literally made my skin crawl, you know, as a mom and as the person who felt like I just needed to protect these little things given to me. And, but we do need to understand as moms that men have a, a, such an irreplaceable role in our son's lives and in our daughter's lives, of course, but we've got to let go and let our men, let our boys become men. And that's, that's the only way to let yeah. that happen is for moms to back off and allow these experiences to take place so these little boys know exactly what they're capable of oh. when they grow up into big men. Very wild at heart of you, and that's, uh, that's perfect. Why... What, 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 how did Billy do that? Can you give us some examples? And as you're telling this, I just found the picture uh, with the caption, Tara and Aaron out crowned king and queen of the Troy Tiny Tot Beauty Review. <laughs> no, he's probably like shaking his fist at me right now. From Gosh, that's funny. So, as I'm, yeah, so as I'm looking at this picture, tell the story of him being, uh, uh, you know, it, becoming a Navy SEAL as a young boy. Yeah, oh, yeah, so by the time he was eight, he told anyone who would listen to him that he was going to be a Navy SEAL when he grew up. He, that he, You know, a conversation with his dad had planted that dream in his heart, and he knew it was like God had just instilled this purpose in his life. So it kept him out of trouble. It kept him out of mischief. It kept him out of everything because he had such a goal-oriented life to do something so fantastic, and he didn't want anything to interrupt his dreams. But by the time he was a senior in high school, he had obliterated uh, the anterior cruciate ligament in his left knee, not once, but twice. Had it repaired the first time, second time, the doctor came out and said, there's too much damage in the knee. I can't fix it. And Aaron's going to spend the rest of his life somewhat handicapped, and he'll never be able to do anything physical again without the use of a special brace. But, you know, Aaron resigned himself to that, thought it was his reality, went ahead and went to college, got a great career lined up in front of him, and then came 9-11, Mike, and something shifted in him on that morning and continued shifting. And a few months later, he came home and told us that he had stopped by the neighbor recruiter's office on the way home from work and joined the SEAL Challenge program. And we all know the rest of the story. He not only made it, he made it with flying colors, just just a brilliant ascension, ascension into the tip of the tip of the spear, making it all the way to SEAL Team 6. He was He was committed, and he never took for granted one day that God had allowed him to do that. Every time we talked about it, his eyes would just almost well with tears talking about how honored he felt that God had allowed him to fulfill that dream and live that life. Uh, The book, we're not done talking, Karen. I got tons more questions for you. But the book is called World Changer, A Mother's Story, Karen Vaughn. Go buy it right now. World Changer, Karen Vaughn. Um, So after the election, we um, trying to talk on the show about different aspects of how Trump won and all that. And this is not my theory, but I've really latched on to learning more about the the great divide in our country. And I don't think it's necessarily progressive, conservative or anything like that. I think it's uh, city versus country. So I'm I'm really interested to hear a little more of of you growing up in the city and and Billy growing up in the country and and then obviously raising your kids in the country. Like what, what life lessons do you get by being a country boy growing up? 
Well, you know what? You you just that's a really good question. No one's ever asked me that. I'm gonna have to think. But you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is just that you get in touch with the creation of the creator, that's it. and it changes you. You know, you you look out every day across fields and and you see the beauty of what God put in front of you, and you see that He gave you this land, He gave you this place to grow up, and. I say in the book, Aaron and Tara, they and, and even Anna, when she got a little bit older, they explored every ridge on that farm, and, and they, they just seized what they had in front of them. I think that's a real difference. You know, girl, I say I grew up in the city. In all honesty, there was a cornfield behind me, but I went to the city school. <laughs> so picture myself as a city girl, like not yep. New York. Don't think New York. Think Union City versus Troy. I was a, you, were, I was a, you were in the you were in <laughs> town. You weren't in the country. You were in, I town. Was in town. Yeah, that's big exactly dem- right. We had we you know we were we had closer access to the grocery store. Yeah, the Piggly Wiggly <laughs> but, was only a couple blocks away, not a twenty right, minute drive. Exactly. Right. It was exactly that was the difference. But yeah, you know, and just another thing that happens when you grow up in the country like that on a farm is you just get to experience risk. I, I tell the story in the book about the time that Billy told Aaron when he was about 10 years old, 80 pounds soaking wet, that we had this cow that tormented our children. They named her White Cow, which you can only imagine why, right? They, but every time they'd walk out the door, she would snarl and snort at them and run them back in the house. Like they were afraid to play in the yard because of White Cow. So one day we're corralling cattle, and Billy says to Aaron, son, I want you to stand in the gap. And, and corral the cattle. And if white cow, if white cow charges you, all you got to do is is jerk your fist back and punch her in the nose, and she will bow down to you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you want him to do what? And he's like, just trust me, Karen. So I did. And sure enough, white cow charged him. Like I said, he was about ten, and he was as scrawny as a kid could be. He jerked that fist back in nerve-wracking defiance and punched that heifer square in the nose. And do you know what? White cow submitted for the first time in the history of her life as the bovine dictator of her uh, farm. <laughs> and that, that's one of those moments, you know, where you, where you just realize when you're growing up on a farm, you have to accept challenges. You are forced to overcome real-life challenges, real-life threats, and learn what you're made of, what you can actually do. Karen, there are schools. There's schools in San Diego that won't let kids play tag on the playground. Oh, Right? I mean, listen to what you just described versus what's going on now. Like, we can't play tag because it involves hitting and... Or chew, or chew a piece of bread into the shape of a gun. Yeah. Little boys were created to play with guns and swords. That's what, golly, why are we trying to drive that drive masculinity out of our society? Oh. Um, Karen, can you <laughs> stick around for a few more minutes? We've got to take a break. Yeah. Can you hang sure. out? All right. Karen Vaughn, uh, the book is uh, World Changer, A Mother's Story. You should, uh, you should buy it. World Changer, A Mother's Story. Also, also, Karen's amazing. What, she's like, oh, geez, I haven't really thought of that before. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's important to live in the country because you're in touch with the creation of your creator. And it's like, that's, a, that's the best answer I could possibly think of. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show on The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.
Slater. Hey, Slater, Crusader. So, Karen Vaughn is here, uh, mom of Aaron Vaughn, Navy SEAL who was killed uh, in 2011. So, geez, uh, six years ago, uh, in Afghanistan. She's amazing. She has a new book called World Changer, a mother's story. Go buy it. Karen, you're awesome. Thank you for being here. Oh, and there's a foreword by, by Sean Hannity, which is pretty cool. Um, so, Karen, as I said, new dad, seven and a half months, little Jack. And what's fun about being new parents is as much chaos as there is in the world, and it's absurd, we, my wife and I, we have control over our home and, and we can set the tone of our house. So I'm just curious, what was the tone of the Vaughn house growing up? Like what were some principles that you guys made sure to have in your home? You know what, Mike, I'm so glad you asked that question because my oldest daughter, Tara, and I wrote the study guide together and she shared a couple principles. We worked these things out together, but some of this stuff was her material and it was brilliant. And I feel like she had a better insight of what happened in our home than I did, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, and so together we, we had some great ideas. And one thing, just two things real quick that come to mind immediately is build a tribe around your family. When you, when you decide what the, what the life uh, what the life verse or the life, uh, what am I trying to say? Like the commitment that you make in your family, who you're going to be, you and, you know, you and your wife, you should sit down and say that, you know, just like when you're starting a business, you say, what is our mission statement, right? Every home should have a mission statement. Who, what do we want to look like when our kids are grown? What do we want them to look like? And then take the backward steps of figuring out how to get from point A to point B when they're adults, right? Yep. And so one thing that she, one thing we talked about was building this tribe around you of a, of a community that are like-minded people. It's the most important thing you can ever do. It will help with breaking down the resistance you have in parenting the way you know you're supposed to parent. And then the other way, the other thing that we talked about that was so, so positive to me and such a strong lesson is that we should not see discipline as the same thing as punishment. And this is the point she made, and it was brilliant is that discipline is not, look, when, when you've got a kid and you lay out the rules of your house very well, right, what happens when the child breaks the rule is not between you and your child. It's between the rules and the rule breaker. Does that make sense? And as soon as you put that in its proper perspective and see discipline like that, because you, it'll change everything fundamentally for you as you're raising your child. Because, see, we, we're just living in a society where discipline seems to have this ugly connotation, but the problem is is we're all born horrible, little, <laughs> selfish beasts, right? You know it. I yep. mean, as precious as they are, right? It's <laughs> a horrible little selfish thing, right? And, and given left to ourselves, Mike, we will grow up to be horrible, mm. selfish human beings, big people, right? And so discipline is the only thing that stands between the child becoming what they should become and, and having a wrecked life. And we see it all around us, this lack of discipline in this generation. My mom, says it best. She says, Dr. Spock screwed us all. And I think she's right. <laughs> you know, this, let, the, let these kids, let these kids just magically become something wonderful all on their own. But you didn't even learn to walk, except for the fact that somebody started picking your hands up and, and one parent stood on one side and said, come, yeah. they trained you to walk, right? We don't even take steps without training. So what is it that makes us think that our children are just going to automatically become wonderful adults when we don't, when we don't take an active role in participating in making them become wonderful adults, showing them the roadmap. And remember, that child that, we, that child that we're raising is going to be someone's spouse one day. Would it be the kind of spouse you'd want to be married to? It's going to be somebody's boss one day or somebody's employee. Is it going to be the employee or the, or the boss that you would want to work for mm. or under? These are the things we need to think about when we're raising kids. You know, it's not just about making your kid happy. 
Kids love structure. They love discipline. Yes. I know that was way too long. No, it's, I, 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 no that, pre- preach. Just keep, keep it going. I love it's it. It's critical. Um, what, can you give us an example? Because I love the rule versus rule break. Like, can you go through that part again and give us an example of that? Like you said, it's... Yeah, look. Okay. So one thing that comes to my mind is we gave, we gave Aaron a BB gun for like his seventh or eighth birthday. Um, shame on us or not, we, we did because we felt like it could handle it. His father told him it was a pump action, Red Rider. You know those things. Yep. And, and so his father said never pump it more than twice. So Aaron, you know, Aaron pumps it more than twice, pumps it about six times, promptly trips and shoots his cousin Courtney in the rear end as she's climbing up. Yes, I know you know Courtney. You know, he comes running to the house, you know, screaming like he doesn't he doesn't check on her. He comes running to defend himself before he you know, before Courtney can get to the house to tell us. But of course, so now it was, look, Aaron, this isn't, we have no choice but to take this gun away from you. You knew the rules. You broke the rules. These were the consequences of breaking the rules. So this is between you and the rules, not between us. We're not punishing you. We are enforcing the rules in our house. So now you lose the BB gun. It sounds so simple, Mike, but yes. so many people do not implement that basic practice when they're raising their children. Because, but, but what about, but mom, but mom, but mom, you're not fair. I hate you. Why did you do this? You're ruining my life. That's exactly when you say, I've done nothing. You broke the rules. You knew what the rules were. I've done nothing to you. And, and let me just, and y- yeah. you, this is between you, the rules, and the rule breaker, not between me and you. Now I have to implement what you knew would happen if you broke the rules. This isn't about me and you or me being unfair to you. This is about life and understanding that life carries responsibility. And you can train them in that from the time they're two years old and want to grab the remote. And you say, no, that's, yeah. that's an adult toy, not a kid toy. Yeah. You know, and you just train and you're persistent and you're consistent with this discipline. And I promise you, it raises strong, powerful, self-dependent, independent kids that become amazing adults. They're very simple principles. Job well done, Mom. You're awesome. I love you. Give my best to Billy, the whole family. I love you too. We'll talk Mike, again. Can I just share my website real quick? Oh my, it's of course, of course, of course. It's just, it's just officialcarenvaughn.com. It's really easy. And that's V-A-U-G-H-N, officialcarenvaughn.com. You can, of course, pick it up on Amazon, but the audio and, uh, and uh, the hard copy and signed copies are available on the website. Oh, good. Okay. Official Karen, K-A-R-E-N-V-A-U-G-H-N.com. Officialcarenvaughn.com. All right, Karen, talk to you soon. Thank you, ma'am. Thanks, Have a wonderful day. How great is she? She's my favorite. Love her so much. Love Karen. Love their family. All right, I have the uh, I have the opposite of that. Can I show? Can we do a story next about the opposite of what you just heard from Karen Vaughn? Is that is that fun? Uh, This is what happens when you have societies that don't do all the things you just heard uh, in the Vaughn family. Slater Radio on Twitter, 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for being here. 1-888-900-3393. Let's talk about the opposite of, uh, of everything that Karen Vaughn just talked about. See what happens when we don't raise kids like, like she did. Uh, there are five high schools in Baltimore and a middle school. So there's six schools 
just brace yourself here. Hold, let me. I want to slow this down. I want to slow this down. I want to make sure everyone gets this. Everyone's paying attention. Everyone's everyone's with me. This chair is getting really bad, by the way. Like it's worse. It's like people have said it's bad, but now it's 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 past my line. It's gone too far. Yeah, you definitely have to get that. Does Miles have it? Can we get Miles? Hey, Miles, can you get the WD? Oh, Miles, is I thought he was here. Is he not here today? Oh, like the. Is he going to be one of the new killer whales? Because they're not they're not using actual killer whales anymore. I don't think anyone heard that. They're getting rid of the killer whales, replacing them with uh, people in costumes. Okay. Well, we wish I wish him I wish him luck. Yeah, this is good. Uh, all right. So there are five Baltimore high schools and a middle school that do not have a single student who is proficient in the state math or English tests. Are you with me? So the test, the, the state tests, they, they rank the kids. So you take a test and then you're, you get a grade one to five, a four or a five on the test is considered proficient. I want to be clear, not, Oh, like a perfect score. A four is proficient. That's like good enough. One, two or three. You're not there yet. At Frederick Douglass High School, which Frederick Douglass would be ashamed at, 185 students took the test. 89% of them got the lowest score. 89% got a one. One student got a three. Only one out of 185 kids got a three, which is not proficient. No one got a four or a five. Zero people. Zero kids. At six schools. What? I don't even. What do you what do you do? What do you do with that? Oh, maybe the tests are really hard this year. No, no. So my, my favorite part of the story here is that the, the Fox affiliate in uh, Baltimore that did this investigation, the, uh, uh, they reached out to the executive director of teaching and learning for Baltimore City Schools. And this person said that some students can be considered proficient even if they did not score a four or five on the test. So they printed that quote. And then the Baltimore City School Administration came back and said, yeah, that person was wrong. You, you do need a four or five on the test to be considered proficient and no student scored that out of six schools. Now the Fox affiliate shared that fact in the first paragraph of their story. And then they go right to a student. They cut right to a student quote. We sat down with a teen who attends one of these schools and has overcome incredible challenges to find success. Uh, this kid grew up in West Baltimore. He was three months old when his father was shot to death. Before his 18th birthday, he would lose two uncles and a classmate, all gunned down on the streets of Baltimore. I've lost a lot of people, so I'm used to it. It hurts. I just choose not to show it. I just keep it in. You just have to live on and keep going on every day. You have to do it somehow. Now, this student is graduating, but he did not also not score. He did not score proficient on math or English, and somehow he's still graduating. So... 
there's not, listen, I know nothing about this kid or his family, right? I just know what two paragraphs that are written. But we've seen this a billion times. There's a lot of factors going in here. The fear, his entire life, growing up in fear. My dad was shot. Am I going to get shot? My friends are shot. My uncles are shot. Am I going to die today? Growing up with no dad. No hope. What are you, what are you hoping in? You're stuck. Everyone's stuck there, it seems. No way to express himself, right? That he talks about keeping it in. Just constant anxiety and defensiveness. Never being able to trust anyone. No respect for authority, obviously. So why study? Learn math. I'm going to learn math. What do you? These kids are trying to survive. These are failed cities. Failed cities. Failed systems, broken families. We are, we are failing our kids in unprecedented ways. How many facts about poverty and fatherlessness do we need to share here? I don't think anymore. I think you get it. So there's a lot of reasons that, you know, things that bring that lead to this crime, et cetera, et cetera. But then you have fatherless, fatherlessness and your kids growing up in this, in this situation and then you drop them off at a school. And it's like, well, what do you want the school to do? Now, the system of the school, they're not helping because now you got this whole restorative justice thing. Maybe we can talk more about this next week. But let, let me just quote this one. This is uh, up in Sacramento. This is uh, a fourth grade teacher. I've a f- fourth grade teacher. I've been punched and kicked and spit on. And called every cuss word you could possibly think of. Now she's also a parent. My second graders class is the most dysfunctional classroom I've ever witnessed with my own two eyes. I've never even heard of classrooms like like this one, Miss Tina's or Miss Woods. She has maybe six extreme behavior students in one class. I've seen them punch her. I've seen them walk around the halls. I've seen her try to read to the class and it took her an hour and a half to read two pages. She says, many of us often go home in tears. Please don't give us more staff development on racism or how to de-escalate a student altercation. We teachers feel as if we are drowning. She talked about one day there was a 16-year-old body slammed uh, a teacher who was trying to break up a fight. Dude, I could buy, could buy slam. Picks him up, throws him on the ground, starts punching him. In that same fight, an assistant, the assistant principal was hospitalized. Because the student was punching him in the neck. Like, what? So here, here's the rub to this story. And this is why I can bring it back to, to Karen here. With her uh, talk about discipline, which most parents don't do. Uh, and schools don't do anymore, right? I bet we had a million people listen now who can talk about how the principal would discipline. Teachers would discipline. Listen, I bet there's people listening now who can call in and tell stories of a teacher who would leave the room and say, uh, I'm going to be back in a couple minutes, read your books, would leave the room and no one dare do anything but read the book. And if she walked back and someone wasn't reading the book, then there was discipline. There was, you got in trouble. Now, like getting the class to read a book, what do you, what do you got in your mind? 
It's getting the students to not punch the teacher. And even then, because of restorative justice, there's no discipline. There's no punishments because of that. So this uh, teacher says, there are those who believe that by suspending kids, we are building a pipeline to prison. Have you heard of this school, the prison pipeline? It's absurd. She says, I think that by not suspending them, we are. I think by telling these kids, you don't have to be on time for anything or behave the right way or anything. You can just assault somebody and we're going to let you come back here. I think that's what sends them off to prison eventually. And obviously that's true. So this is, this is, we have crime where kids are scared. Fathers killed. Father's not around. No discipline. Throw them in a school system where kids were never disciplined in the first place. So they're not going to behave at school. So then the schools have just caved into that and, and stopped doing any disciplining themselves and now have just restorative justice where we talk to the kid and then bring them right back in the classroom where they just continue to punch the teachers. And then we're shocked. I hope no one was shocked that six schools in Baltimore, not a single student is proficient in math or English. Not a single one. How can that be? Maybe, maybe there'd be a situation where, like, I would be, I think it would be a disaster if half the kids in a school weren't proficient, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be enough to have a news story about, like, half the kids can't read or write at grade level. Half the kids aren't proficient. That's a, a terrible tragedy. I could give the same spiel I just gave if half the kids weren't proficient. No kids are proficient? None of them? And in this one school, 89% of them got a one, the lowest score. Not even close. We desperately need uh, lessons like, uh, like the ones in Karen Vaughn's book. World Changer, A Mother's Story. Go buy it. Karen Vaughn, official Karen Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-N, official Karen Vaughn.com, or you can pick it up on Amazon, obviously. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show on The Blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders. Thanks for being here. Just uh, the show flew by today. I'm really, really glad you were here. If you missed any of it, of course, you can go to theblaze.com slash radio. Check it all out. So there's a school in Long Island that's making a student sign a contract saying that they will no longer change their gender anymore. This person has changed it twice already. Born, born a girl, then as a sophomore, wanted to, the school to recognize her as a boy. And everyone went along, went by her new boy name, changed in the nurse's office and all that, whatever. Then this year, she decided, I guess senior year, decided to go back to being a girl. And the school said, fine, but you can't keep doing this. So sign this contract that says you're a girl now that we're done. So, this, so now, obviously, she's upset. 
she said, they should have supported me in my decision either way. A student should, fe- should feel safe to figure their identity out no matter how many times they change who they are. All right, so this is, I, I just said that you do what you want with it, but this is all going to continue to just spiral out of control. I have a similar story here just about direction, I think, and, and just what happens when we don't do what we know is true and what is, we know is right and what is time-tested. So Harvard just released a big study, 2,000 uh, kids, I guess 18 to 25, 2,000 young adults, about their romantic and sexual experiences. And the results of the study proved, and this is not my analysis, this is their analysis, that hookup culture, right? So this hookup culture that has been pushed as normal, not only normal, but as important, right? An, an important way to express yourself and find yourself, right? Be free and explore your sexual identity and, and uh, have many partners and learn about yourself. And all, right? That's damaging. It destroys, among other things, romantic Intimacy. This is again. This is Harvard University. This is not um, not some church coming to this conclusion. This is Harvard came to this. Let me quote from the researcher. He said one of the damaging consequences uh, is we are failing miserably to prepare young people for romantic love. Probably the most important thing they will do in life. And the second is that there are very high rates of misogyny and sexual harassment. So. I can go through those real quick here. Um, the first thing is the fact that we're failing miserably to prepare young people for romantic love is because hookup culture says you do that. Just hook up. Right? There's no concept of commitment. Obviously there's no concept of connection or unconditional love or courting serving. None of that. So why, why would kids have those skill sets? They haven't been raised or trained to have those skill sets. And then the second point about misogyny, this study says, this is not me, the study says that pornography teaches boys as young as eight that women enjoy domination and degradation. So these guys grow up and do just that and it just destroys everything. Last week we talked about James Dean, the world's most famous male porn star, and he's like, oh, it was just, he's having a crisis of conscience about what he's been doing for the last couple of decades of his life, um, and he's seen over time how damaging it is. This is the, the number one male porn star is like, oh, gee, this is really harmful for kids, and he's seen the effect of it as kids who've grown up in this culture are now old enough uh, to be in these relationships, and he's like, oh, it's, we've, I've totally poisoned them. That's, that's what he's saying. So we go in a million different directions, but I got to run here. Um, you know, just to tie it into Karen here talking about discipline and how the old traditional principles work. They're true. They're right. And we have all this new age, modern philosophy that we think so trendy and cool. And it's just wrong. It's just, it's just people trying to make stuff up to sound important. And though some people mean well, absolutely. But some people are just looking to, I don't want to say make a buck, but like the guy, we got to find something new. We're obsessed with the new. Why? We know what works in so many aspects of, of life. We know what's right. And every once in a while, you get a study from even a place like Harvard that proves what we've always known to be true. 
Be confident in that. Be confident in what you know is true. Slater Crusaders, I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. We'll see you next Saturday. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze, Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network.